Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 54. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn there, or pull up your app, turn there. All right, let's pray and we'll get into our chapter tonight. Uh, God, we thank you and praise you for the day. I thank you for each heart that's here. Lord, it is the Wednesday after Easter and it's kind of back into the quote-unquote routine, but there's no routine with you, Lord. Each day is special. Each day carries meaning, Lord, because we're in your kingdom and a part of your camp. God, we've been bought by the blood of Christ and what we celebrate on uh, celebrated Sunday, that you're risen from the dead, we still celebrate today and each day. Because in you we have the victory, in you we have the promise of eternal life. And so we praise you for that. Father, I pray that as we study these words, less familiar words than than those of Isaiah 53, Lord, just that you would speak to our hearts, that you would show us your promises, that you would show us your love. Holy Spirit, just be here in in power, um, bringing power to your word, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we talked about as we were getting close to Isaiah 53, that that chapter really is the pinnacle, is the escalation of the Old Testament. And for chapters like, you know, um, 50, 51, and 52, those are climbing the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, or Mount Messiah, if you want to call it, not Mount Moriah. That's um, a different thing. Oh, never mind. I was going to try to make a joke. It didn't work. Never mind. And so... uh, the Mount Messiah is is chapter fifty three, and it's it's a beautiful picture as we looked at on Good Friday the the picture of the suffering servant that Messiah had to come had to be cut off from the land of the living as we read and and actually die on our behalf that the full picture of his kingship includes his death burial and resurrection and and we see all of that that by by his stripes were healed the the chastisement of us all was laid upon his shoulders, that he bore the weight of our sin, that he, he carried the cross on our behalf. And that's, that's the beautiful picture of Isaiah chapter 53, kind of the peak. So now that we've you know, ascended to the peak, where do we go from here? But down the other side of the mountain, right? Once you've made it to the peak, then it's time to continue on and, and press on. And the only way is, is down. But I don't mean down in a negative way. I don't mean like it's it's not all downhill from here, like, oh, it's just that was the best and now we have nothing else. No, I mean, now we get to see how what happens with life. Now we get to see the response, that we get to see the result of what happened in Isaiah chapter 53. Because he came as a suffering servant, because he came and died for us, then in chapters 54 and 55, as we'll look at tonight, we get to see what's happened and what God's promises are in light of his suffering. And all got to remember, all of this is in the backdrop of uh, Babylonian captivity, right? God has told the nation of Israel, it hasn't happened yet, God has told the nation of Israel, you're, you're being taken captive, 70 years in Babylon, that, that is coming. And when things look horrible as you are in the throngs of captivity in Babylon, when you are slaves to another king, and you are, it looks like there's no hope because of the strength of Babylon, then hold on to these promises. God's giving them to them before they even go into captivity. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 54, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Now, I don't need to explain that at all. That makes perfect sense to everybody, doesn't it? No, not at all. It took me four times reading that just to try to figure out what... what, And then even then, I wasn't sure. So that's why commentaries come in handy. That's why teachers who have gone this way before, you go and listen to them and say, all right, what is Isaiah talking about. Well, first of all, the thing to note is he commands this barren people, these, the, 
those that have not labored with child to, to sing. That's a, a joyous response. That's, a, that's a, a command to sing, and Isaiah actually does it over 30 times within the book of Isaiah, would be to respond to God in song, to declare his worth, to worship him through uh, music. And here he's saying to the barren woman, and you got to remember that a barren woman in the Hebrew community would have been, that would have been considered a reproach. To not be able to have children would have been considered by the Hebrew people a reproach, that something was wrong with that person or with their family because they weren't able to bear children. That's not necessarily brought on by God as much as it is. it was a, a cultural understanding in those days. But the reason that God is likening the nation of Israel to that who was barren is because their lives were not producing the fruit that God had wanted them to, all because they had turned their back on God. Remember, they started it all. They're the ones that chose to chase after the shiny things of this world, to pursue other idols. And God said, fine, you want other gods? You want other idols? Off to Babylon, the king of idolatry, the capital of idolatry, you shall go. And so their lives weren't producing fruit because their lives weren't lined up with what God had planned for them. God told them as they came out of Egypt, hey, you just stick with these things that I've, I've commanded you. You follow these, these, these commands over your life and, and you'll have blessing. There'll be blessing upon blessing. But if you stray from them, then you won't produce the fruit. And so he's likening the nation of Israel in their current state to that of a woman who had not born things. But then the promise comes, more are the children of the desolate than of the married woman, it says there at the end of verse 1. So the married woman in this picture would be the nation of Israel, the apple of God's eye, the, 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 Mary, the, 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 the one that God married to him, like he likens the church to the bride of Christ, same picture. It's the, the, the one that he's laid down his life for, the one that he has declared his love for. That is the nation of Israel in this in this state. We need to can remember something, that around this time, as Isaiah was writing these things, another prophet by the name of Hosea was getting his commandments. And God had an interesting life planned out for Hosea. He told Hosea, go marry a prostitute and let her continue to prostitute herself unto other men because I want the nation of Israel to know and to see a picture of how they're treating me. They, they're committing adultery on me. I, God the Father is saying, I, they are my bride, and they're, they're sleeping around. They're chasing after the relation, other relationships that they are not committed to, and they're committing adultery on me. And so Hosea was a, a vibrant picture of that. And, and so what God is saying is, is that's why you're not bearing forth fruit. So the result is, uh, let's say it this way. So the result of the suffering servant coming is to have a greater result. Christ came to have a greater result, that there would be more children, that the, the, the children born of the desolate, that, that the Israelites had fallen from God, opening up, the, the path for the Gentiles to come into a relationship with him, the, the fruit of that would be better than the children of the married woman than God just dealing with the nation of Israel. Through the suffering servant, God was going to open the door wider. Sum it up that way. Does that make sense? Tracking with me. A long way to get to that statement. So verse 2. He says, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Talking about making greater provision for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Now, verse two is an interesting verse to enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtain of your dwellings, um, lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes. These are, these are very popular buzzwords right now, especially in the prosperity gospel community. 
You just need to lard, you know, you know, lengthen your your uh, cords. You need to strengthen your stakes. You need to let that, let your curtains stretch out. You need to place your faith. You need to stretch these things out. They, do you guys remember back in the '90s, maybe around 2000, the book "The Prayer of Jabez" came out, and the, and it was this little four little four little verses. I, I don't even remember exactly where it was, but somebody wrote a book about how the prayer of Jabez is this mantra that if you just say it enough times, God has to bless you, right? And that was the idea, and it, it became insanely popular. And it was one of those books that when we had the bookstore, we actually had copies of it, and then we started reading it and going, no, this isn't exactly what we want to say. This, it, was like, it, it was like almost like the rosary in a Catholic prayer. If you just say the prayer of Jabez seven times every day, then God has to bless you in this way. And, and that's, while this is a promise, verse 2, to the nation of Israel, to take it and say, it's, gonna, it's, a, it's a declaration that God is going to prosper you, I think twists it a little bit. What is God saying? Well, God has promised the nation of Israel. We need to understand that. God has promised the nation of Israel a specific piece of property in the Middle East. The promised land set by certain borders. And as many as would try to divide for peace today, and that is one of the common things that if Israel would just give up this portion of the land, then the surrounding areas would be at peace or whatever. We know that won't necessarily be the case anyway. But as they try to divide for peace today... What God has given the nation of Israel will not be compromised, ultimately. God will ultimately have the victory, and Israel will receive the land that it's been promised to them. So, for example, now and today, you look at a map, a current modern map of the nation of Israel, and then you talk about the West Bank. The West Bank you speak of today is the West Bank of the Jordan River. That's the, that's the eastern border, Okay. But that's not the West Bank that's promised to the nation of Israel. And when it comes in fulfillment, the West Bank that's promised to the nation of Israel is the Euphrates River, the West Bank of the Euphrates River. So when we move into the kingdom where God is ruling and reigning from the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel will expand its borders. It will fulfill the promise given here in verse 2 and 3, for you expand to the right and left your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. So the the day is coming when this will be fulfilled. So verse 4 says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Yes, Israel, you're going into captivity. Israel in in this verse is a picture of the widow because... She was away from her husband. She had turned her back on God. And while in the captivity, she, they, she chased after other gods, in essence being choosing to be a widow. God is reminding them, as he says, do not fear, do not be ashamed. He's going to overcome these things. The captivity isn't going to be forever. It's, it's, it's for a purpose and for a, a set time. I love verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. I love the titles of the name of God. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You know, the, the Messiah, the Savior, the, one, the Emmanuel, God with us. There's so many different titles that we can attribute to God. And I love when Scripture will just lay some of them out. Look at the, there's five of them in that verse. First of all, he is your husband. Our primary relationship, the greatest relationship that each and every one of us has is our relationship with God. Just like the greatest relationship you have with on this earth is with your spouse. There is no other relationship that you have outside of a marriage that is as strong, as intimate, as connected as your relationship with your spouse. Now that comes and go that, that, that struggle, there's struggle with that. There's, there's things that can tear at that and pull at that. But 
the God-given relationship of a marriage is the greatest example that we have of our relationship with God. In fact, the relationship we have with God is even stronger. And so he calls himself our husband, meaning that we're connected to him. And that is obviously through the Messiah that came. He says also the Lord of hosts is his name. That can be translated the God of the angel armies. He, 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 is, in, he is in charge of the heavenly host. He is a commander, uh, a chief, an executive, uh, one who rules over the armies. He has power at his disposal. He is our redeemer. He's the one that bought us back. It was by his blood that we have been purchased back. The Holy One of Israel. We said that specifically is a name for the Messiah. And he's called the God of the whole earth. And that title is interesting because it's very different than the other gods that were worshipped that day. As, as you look at the gods of Egypt, each one had a specific reign. It was the god of the flies. It was the lord of the pigs. It was the, the, the king of the cats. It was the, the one who controlled the wind and the one who controlled the rain. It was the one that was the, the fertility god. It was everybody, each of these small g gods have supposedly had their own command, their own reign. And God is saying, no, I'm God of the whole earth. It's all mine. And this would have been a very different picture from what Israel was chasing after. So verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Look at this verse. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. He says, For a mere moment I have forsaken you. How long did they spend in captivity? 70 years. That's a lifetime. That's, somebody could, could be born and die in the captivity of Babylon. And yet God likens it to a mere moment. You mean somebody's entire life could be swallowed up in this captivity? And to you, God, it's a blink of an eye? Yeah. It's a, it's a different perspective that you and I that you and I have. Some of the Hebrew people were born and died living in the captivity of Babylon. Yet to God, it's a mere moment, and we need a change of perspective. We we get so we live in an instant generation, right? Ramen noodles don't happen quick enough. Sorry, you know, ninety seconds in the water. I'm sorry, that's just not, not fast enough for me. Microwave them to make them fast. It's just, we, and, and we live in a society, you know, people used to have to wait to see the pictures that they took. Could you imagine clicking a picture of the Grand Canyon and having to wait a week to get the picture back to actually look at it? We don't do that anymore. It's instant gratification. Click. Oh, no, that's not good. Click. And you, we live in an instant society. We need an eternal perspective. A, a perspective that we could look at a, a life, 70 years, and say, that's just a moment. That's just a, that's a breath. That's a vapor. We get so caught up in the here and now. So impatient with what God is doing. We think God needs to hurry up, but to to him, 70 years is a mere moment. It's eternal perspective that we lack. How about this? And I said this for my benefit as much as hopefully for yours as well. We think we need God to hurry because we're trying to build our kingdom not his. And we think that I only have so much time. I've only got 70 years, God, and I need to build my kingdom, so you better get moving now. And we're not busy building his kingdom. We're busy building ours. God could use a whole life 
and not on the outside make it look like it accomplished anything. Yet for his purposes, it was entirely fruitful and exactly what it wanted to, to accomplish. What if we never attain to that thing which we think is owed us? Is our life any less significant in the eyes of God? No. As long as we've accomplished what he set before us to do. We only have so long. He has forever. And if I don't fulfill the plan that he has for me, he'll raise somebody else up to do it because his will is always accomplished. If my life falls short, if my years fall short of fulfilling the entire plan, somebody will come along behind me and fulfill that plan or build on it. 70 years to him is just a moment. The amazing thing to think about is, if 70 years is a mere moment, look at the promise at the end of verse 7. But with great mercies, I will gather you. So if 70 years is a mere moment, then what does God consider big? What does God consider great? Because that's what he says. Mercies will be great in that time. Whatever that is, whatever that big is, that's the mercies we receive. If 70 years is a blink, then whatever great is to him has got to be really, really big. A day is like a thousand years unto the Lord, I think it says in Peter. You know, if you guys heard the question, you know, of the young person that says, God, what's a, what's a million dollars to you? And God says, oh, it's just like a penny. It's, there's, it's of in, 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 uh, inconsequential. God, what's a million dollars like to you? It's just like a penny. Well, God, what's a million years like to you then? Oh, it's just a second. So the young man says, God, can I have a, can I have a penny? And he says, yeah, just a second. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the point being, we lack eternal perspective. And while, yes, we may have only 70, 80, 90, however, 50, 30 years on this earth, in Him we have all of eternity. And 70 years on the other side of the threshold of death, you're not going to be worried about what you've missed here. You're not going to be worried about it. 10,000 years, we've only just begun, as Amazing Grace would say. That's great mercy. So verse 8 says, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, 70 years, but with the everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Isaiah here seems to take no issue with the flood of Noah, that it was a global flood, unlike so many quote-unquote experts of today that would say Noah's flood wasn't global. Isaiah says clearly that it was. I'll go with Isaiah's vote. But he's saying, like the promise that he wasn't going to flood the earth any longer, so too he has promised to the nation of Israel, I'm not going to be angry with you, I'm not going to rebuke you. Yes, you'll be chastised, Yes, you'll be corrected, and that's what the Babylonian captivity was. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempests, and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. He's saying captivity? Yeah, you're going to captivity, but it's for a time, a set time. Homeless as a nation for 1900 years? Yeah, you're going to walk through that as well. Speaking of the nation of Israel, they you know, Jerusalem was overturned in 70 AD. Israel didn't have a, a place to call their own for 1,900 years until 19, what was it, 48, Tim? Does that sound right? When Israel was once again declared a nation. 
yeah, you're going to have to walk through that as well, but I'm going to walk through it with you. The promises that are going to come will far outweigh the trial, the difficulty, the challenge that you need to walk through. Look at the, the, how he's describing this new Jerusalem. It's, it's like in uh, the, the new city that comes in the book of Revelation, as you study the book of Revelation, the city that descends down 1,500 square miles, 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 tall, is described in a very similar way as to what's given here in Isaiah with the, the foundation or the, 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 I'm sorry, the stones of colorful gems and the foundations of sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of rubies. That's the towers that would defend. Could you imagine the sun shining through this defense tower that's made of rubies? How beautiful that would look. Gates of crystal, walls of precious stone, all these things in the kingdom of God will be resources to build with. That's the that's how many resources our God has. That's the opulence of God. Streets of gold. You know, it's gold, that's just asphalt up here. That's just in the city. We place very little value in that. We walk on it. Those things that we hold in value will mean very little in light in comparison to the light of being with him. But God is the point being God is opulent in his blessing. All of your children, it says in 13, shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In that day when the city will reign, when God reigns from the city, God himself, we've talked about this before, will teach the people. <laughs> I can't wait for that day. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm flying to Jerusalem. What for? I have a Bible study with Jesus. That'd be all right. I mean, we studied on Sunday, you know, the two, the two men that were walking with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us as we, as we walked with us? That's the, that's the feeling we're going to get to have as we sit at the feet of Jesus and allow him to teach us. And the result of it all is peace. It says there, and great peace, uh, great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror for it, and from terror for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. So those that would bring terror, it says, indeed they shall surely assemble. That's that's those that would bring terror. And God is saying, I will be the city's defense, all for your sake. I will stand against them and all shall fall who stand against you. God's like taking care of his bride, just in the same way as you husbands would, were you to have an intruder in your house. You don't wake your, your wife up and go, honey, go check that out. I'm going to stay right here. But, you know, you just let me know what's going on, right? You, you, would, you better not do that. You do that. You got, you got words with me. That's all I'm saying. No, as a husband would take care of his wife. I'll go check it out. So God takes care of us. Uh, verse 16, Behold, I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. I've created the spoiler to destroy. This is a familiar verse. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So he's saying there, no weapon is, I'm going to protect you. I'll be the shield about you. No weapon that's going to come against you will stand. Every tongue that speaks against you, that's going to fall, that's going to those are both offensive things, weapons and tongues. James would say the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. Those are offensive things, and both are destructive. And what God is saying is, in that day, when I come to your aid, when I rescue you, neither the weapon nor the tongue will be effective against my people. He shall be our defender. He shall be our hope and our shield. In the book of Revelation in chapter 12, uh, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a voice, a loud voice, saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength 
and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Who is the accuser of the brethren? None other than Satan himself, whose native tongue is lies. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the book of John says. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one that uses his tongue to stand in the throne room of God and say, these people don't deserve your grace. These people have fallen from your mercy. These people, he stands in accusation against us. And as it says in the victory of Revelation chapter 12, he has been cast down. God is our defender. God is our shield. Those that would form a weapon against us and every tongue that rises against us in judgment, God condemns. He stands against us. Now, we need to remember that's the ultimate ending. That those weapons will not stand against us. us, That the words would ultimately not prosper. There are times in our 70 years, or however many we get, that God allows testing. That God allows sifting of our lives, like Job, like Peter. Sometimes, this is hard to think about, sometimes God allows that for an entire lifetime. Allows you to be sifted for an entire lifetime. But ultimately, when we have seen what grace has accomplished for us, the pain of even a full life of being tested will pale in comparison. If you think your life is tragically horrible because you're following after God, first of all, I would question your your view. But if you're going through the sifting of the century in this moment, and you're struggling with, with whatever it is, When we fully see the light of His grace and what grace has bought for us, it will pale in comparison. And the pain of this world will grow strangely dim. When we we cross from this life to the next. One thing I want you to note there at the end of verse 17, this is a heritage of the servants, plural, of the Lord. This is, this is kind of opening up the door for the next verse, which is what we would call chapter 55. And, and then chapter 55 opens up the door that the church might come in. So as he speaks of servants here, he's speaking both of the nation of Israel and the bride, his church, were grafted together, ultimately all of us, his bride. But it's interesting that it would say that, that the, the servants of the Lord, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, both Israel, who he will raise to its proper place once again in those last days, and the church, those uh, the Gentiles that have given their lives to him because the door has been opened, this is the heritage, is we get his grace. As we transition to 55, we hear the inclusion of the church. So chapter 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Where is that store? Right? Where is the milk and and, um, wine without price? (laughs) I want to shop there. But the invitation is to everyone who thirsts, not just to the nation of Israel, but to anyone and everyone. The invitation is to all. And the invitation is to come to the feast, come to eat, come to drink. And it's all for free. Why? Because the price has already been paid. The price has already been paid. That's why it's free. That's why it doesn't cost you anything. One of the reasons I love cruises I've been on a few in my life, and my dad's not because we're wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but my dad's a travel agent, so we get good deals once in a while on cruise ships. The best part of being on a cruise is sitting down to dinner and going, I'll have one of those, and I'll have one of those, and I'll have two of those because there's no prices on the menu. 
That's the best menu that there is, right? There's no, there's no prices listed. It's all included. Why? Because you've already paid for it. That's what the money up front was. That's the best type of menu. Well, that's what this is. Come to the feast. Come find the milk. Come get the best of the wines. Why? Just come on in. There's no price set. Enjoy yourself in his grace. Grace is free to us because of what it costs the Savior. We need to hear this. Grace is not a license to sin. Romans would tell us that. What shall I do then? Shall, shall I go on sinning so that grace may, may abound? No, by no means. Grace is not a license for us to sin. Knowing that we're forgiven doesn't give us the, the freedom to just go out and do whatever we want to do. The invitation is, um, sorry, grace is not a license to sin. Um, to do so would be to make a mockery of what's been paid, of the price that's been paid. There's those that would want to make grace, the grace of God expensive. The guys on TV, just send us your seed. Send us your $100, and we'll make sure you get grace. That makes grace expensive. Grace is free. He says in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Ultimately, the things we spend our money on are like Chinese food. Know what I'm saying? The things we spend our money on satisfy us for a moment, but in an hour we're hungry again. That's Chinese food. You can, eat, you can stuff yourself to your, you know, General Tso's is coming out your nostrils. And then an hour later, you're like, yeah, I could go for a milkshake. Well, at least I can. But the, the point being, that's everything of this life, everything that we would spend our money on, that's the same result. It might satisfy for a moment, but ultimately it will leave you hungry yet again. Leaving our soul wanting. But if we listen to him, that's what he says, listen carefully to me then our souls are satisfied. He says in verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. To incline your ear is a posture of submission. Incline means to bend in, to listen. To incline your ear, that's a posture of submission, submitting to the kingship of God. And when we do that, we reap the everlasting or the benefit of the everlasting covenant that the sure mercies of David. What are the sure mercies of David? That somebody would always be on his throne. That was the promise made to David. How is that fulfilled? It's in the Messiah. He, the Messiah is the sure mercies of David. That's the everlasting covenant that God has made with us. He says, incline your ear to that, submit to that. Indeed, I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This being spoken again to the nation of Israel, while chapter 55 is an inclusion of the church, this verse, 50, or verse 5 is for the nation of Israel, that in that day, in the millennial kingdom, they will be the center of the world. Nations that do not know them will run to them. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Have you talked with the people that say, well, I'll just give my life to Christ in the last moments of my life. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll give my life to Christ in the midnight hour. What happens if you die at 11.30? You know? It's not promised that you'll have an opportunity to give your life to Christ in that moment. What happens if it comes more quickly than you would expect? Then you, you lose the opportunity. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's saying there is a time coming when he won't be found. When he won't be able to be found. That would be when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That door will be shut. So seek him while he may be found and call on him while he is near. 
Ultimately, he's saying, why spend to buy that which does not satisfy? Rather, seek what the Lord would give us freely. Why spend to buy that which does not satisfy? Rather, seek what the Lord would give us freely. And that is his grace. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on us and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So after we incline our ear, then the proper response is to forsake our ways and our thoughts and to return to him. What's it mean to return to him? Go back to repent, to turn in the other direction. You were facing away from him, now turn toward him. Repentance on our part brings about his abundance, mercy, and grace. Repentance on our part brings about his abundant mercy and grace. Remember, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve his wrath. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve eternal life, but by his grace, we receive it. So we don't get his wrath that we do deserve, that's mercy, and we get eternal life, that's his grace. So we incline our ear, we forsake our ways and our thoughts. That's the preparation for verses 8 and 9. This is verses you're familiar with. You probably have it highlighted in your Bible already. For my thoughts are not as your thoughts, nor are my way, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So in light of his abundant mercy and grace, we are to forsake our ways and forsake our thoughts. Why? Because his ways and his thoughts are so much higher than ours. How high is the heavens above the earth? It's immeasurable. The, the, the universe is forever expanding. It's, not, it's a, not a number that can be measured. I mean, they, they keep changing the size of the universe. 12 billion light years, 20 billion light years, whatever it is now. The, is, the point being, they, it's eternal. How, how much higher are his thoughts than our thoughts? Eternally higher. <laughs> it's immeasurable. So why not trust in him? You guys are familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He shall direct your paths. We should be able to trust Him. Why? Because His thoughts are eternally higher than our thoughts. His ways are forever higher than our ways. How about verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 3? Not everybody knows that one. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Depart from evil, that sounds like leaving my thoughts and my ways and trust in his thoughts and his ways. Incline our ear to his abundant mercy and grace, forsake our ways and our thoughts because they're so much higher. Verse 10, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that, they may, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. How much higher is God's ways than our ways? Whatever he sets out to do, he accomplishes it. How much of what you set out to do do you actually accomplish? For everybody, it's different. I would say for me, it's probably about 50% on a good day. But even if you were 98%, you would still fall short somewhere. And what you set out to do, you failed to accomplish. That never happens for God. And when his word goes forth, it always accomplishes what he sets it out to do. When his word goes forth. His spirit is the deliverer of his word. And it does not fail. In the same way that Jesus is the word and was made flesh, and he accomplished all that the Father gave him to do, right? It is finished is what he said on the cross. I've accomplished everything the Father sent me to do, he said in the Gospel of John. 
Well, so too his word will prosper in the thing for which he sends it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's, there's a greater way to say that. All scripture is given, all, all scripture is God-breathed. It is the exhale of God. The, the book you hold in your hands is the, it's the breath out of his mouth. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I fully believe this, and we'll finish up real quickly, but I fully believe that if God intends for you to hear it from his word, you will hear it. It will be accomplished. People worry about, especially in a room this size, when a baby gets fussy and starts crying. Oh no, he's in, the baby's interrupting the pastor. No, he's not. No, she's not. Well, I'm distracted. Well, that just means God doesn't want you to hear. Because God's word never returns void. God's word always accomplishes what it's supposed to do. So if, if God wants you to hear what I'm saying, you'll hear it. It doesn't matter if you're sleeping in the moment. God will wake you up. If God wants you to hear it, he can wake up a nodding person. He can calm a crying baby. His spirit is powerful enough to do that. I fully believe it. He gets our attention. No crying baby, no nodding saint will keep God from delivering his word to your heart. It will accomplish it. And that's why we continually seek to bring the word of God. That's why we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The word of God is what changes people's lives. It's not what I have to say. It's not my rhetoric. It's the, the Bible. We need to understand that there's a great difference in teaching from the Bible and teaching the Bible. There's a great difference between teaching from the Bible and teaching the Bible. We want to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. We want to teach the Bible. Not just pick and choose. If you were to decide to read War and Peace, we had a ton of time or something. If you were to pick up a, a, you know, a thousand page book, and we'll pick War and Peace, and you decided to read two sentences from chapter one and a paragraph from chapter through two, you skip chapter three, you read most of chapter four, you jump to chapter 21, and then you put the book down. Are you going to be able to tell me about what War and Peace is about? No, but that's what churches do with the Bible. I'll just take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and we'll just, these are my pet passions, and these are the things that I like to talk about, and I'll use the Bible to, to teach from. I'll use it as my launching point. That's not wise. We teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Why? Because that's what changes lives. We live in a day and an age where biblical knowledge or the lack of biblical knowledge is at an all-time high. And not just by people in the world by people in the church. Turn to the book of Hezekiah. There is no book of Hezekiah. How many animals did Moses take on the ark? None. It was Noah that took them on the ark. The epistles are the apostles' wives. <laughs> this, these are questions that Ann Landers asked some people. And these were the responses that she got. I, I went, to, went to find it online. I can't find it. Joe Foch was talking about it. But that was one of the things. Who are, what, what are the epistles? Oh, that's the apostles' wives. David fought the Finkelsteins. <laughs> that was another one. <laughs> Biblical knowledge is at an all-time low in our society. It's sad. 
Why? Because the pulpits aren't teaching the Word of God. That's why we will forever stand firm on teaching the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's what changes lives. So finish up. You shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That would be an interesting sight. But the results, point being, the result of a surrendered life to God, a will given to the word of God, is a life filled with joy. And then verse 13, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, uh, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So he's saying instead of thorns and instead of briars, what are those? Those are the results of the curse. Remember Genesis chapter 3, when we fell? You shall work with the toil of your hand and briars and thorns you shall have to overcome. Those are the results of the curse. So instead of those things, we get cypress trees and myrtle trees. Those were in the garden. So instead of the curse, we get the blessing. Instead of a broken relationship outside of God with him, we get an eternal relationship restored to the garden state in him. The backside of our Messiah mountain, the result of the suffering servant is the blessing of a right relationship with him. That he came and died, cut off from the land of the living on our behalf, results in us having a right relationship with him. And that's the joy of seeing the backside, chapter 54, 55. Amen? Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word going forth, and we pray it went forth in power. I pray that our hearts and our lives will be drawn unto you. I pray, Father, that as we go from this place, Father, that we would carry the word in our hearts and in our minds. I pray, Father, that we would be well-equipped saints because we're devoted to you. We've inclined our ear to what you would say. Lord, we do not want to trust in our own way or lean on our own understanding. We want to acknowledge you in all things, God, and trust that you will direct our path. We praise you. Just guide us as we leave this place. Keep us safe until we meet again or see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.